Good morning. Um, I just want to take a quick moment to publicly acknowledge and honor our Pastor Finney, um, who has been faithfully and humbly serving and leading our church for the last five years. And that is no easy task. Uh, we can't imagine what Pastor Finney has gone through this past year with you know, the political climate, the pandemic, the church transitions. But despite all that, our pastor has been faithfully pointing people to Christ around him. And so for that, he gives us a, a perfect example of servanthood. And I'm proud that he's our pastor. Let's continue to keep him and, him and his family in our prayer and also encourage him along the way. With that being said, uh, last week I had a unique experience with a fruit that I am you know, I have been familiar with all my life. Uh, usually when my dad or my wife's dad comes to visit, uh, they, they'll bring a sack of oranges for my son. And so last week I was, I was preparing my son's school snack. I decided to grab a couple oranges and to peel them and then put it in a Ziploc bag for him. As I started to peel the orange, I started to see green spots underneath the surface so, you know, I wasn't sure what it was. You know, to me, it looked like mold, so I just threw it out. I grabbed another orange, I peeled it, and once again, there's all these green spots inside. So, of course, you know, being a good parent, I'm throwing it out, and I gave him another snack to uh, take to school. What's funny is, from the outside, you know, I, I couldn't see that there was something going on inside the orange. Judging from the surface, Everything looked fine. There was no blemish. There was no spotting. But it's only when I started to peel off the surface that I realized that there's something going on inside this orange. Now, one of the biggest themes uh, of, the, of the book of 1 Samuel is this, that man looks at the outward appearance while God looks at the heart. Man looks at the outward appear, uh, appearance, but God looks at the heart. Now, we with our natural eyes, when we look at each other, we see each other for what we look like. But when God looks at us, he sees us for who we are. And there's a big difference in that. God doesn't just see us for what we display. God sees who we are. He sees our heart. And for God, he is more concerned about what's on the inside, about what's in our heart, than he is about what's on the outside and what we show on the surface. Over the last few weeks, we've been looking at a period in, uh, uh, in Israel's history where God was using different judges to lead and direct his people. Now, the role of a judge was a, a non-hereditary leadership role. You couldn't pass it down to your daughter or your son. It was temporary. And the role of a judge, you know, they had limited authority. They were only in charge of certain areas. Now, we've come to a place where Samuel is now the last judge of this era, and he's also the first prophet. The people of God, Israel, come to Samuel and they say, Samuel, you're getting old, and your children don't walk in your footsteps, and we demand a king like all the other nations to rule us. Now, this made Samuel very upset because he knew that the people were rejecting him and God. And so Samuel goes to God, and God tells Samuel, 
It's not you that they're rejecting. It's me. And, 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 and Israel had done this all throughout their history where they reject God. Even though God had done a great job in taking care of him, taking care of them, they wanted an earthly king. And God already knew that his people would ask for a king because back in the book of Deuteronomy, God lists out requirements for a king. You know, it wasn't, the, the problem was not that Israel was asking for a king. The problem was the motive behind it. Israel wanted to replace God with an earthly king. They thought an earthly king would do a better job of taking care of them than God would. And in 1 Samuel 8.20, it also tells us that they wanted a king so they could be like all the other nations. When God wanted to uh, have them set apart and be an example to all the other nations around them, they wanted to be like everyone else. And it wasn't the fact that they asked for a king that was the problem. It was the motive within their heart. Now, after this demand from the people, God had warned the people in saying that having a king is not everything that you imagine it to be. It's going to come with a cost. And he's going to tax you. He's going to use your daughters to work for him. He's going to use your sons to fight in his military service. But the people still pushed for a king. And God decided to give them that king. And so what did God do? God led Samuel the prophet to this man named Saul. He had Saul anointed and appointed to rule over as the first king of Israel. Now Saul was a handsome guy. He was tall. He came from a good family. He came from a small, humble tribe, the tribe of Benjamin. And at first, Saul seems humble. Um, the, the, the Spirit of God comes upon Saul and he starts to win battles. But then little by little, we start to see Saul's true colors. We begin to see that Saul is not who he portrays on the outside. You know, that there's something going on in his heart. There's a rebellion within his heart. He wants to do his own thing. You know, he wants to make his own rules. He's someone that wants the acceptance and the approval of the people around him. And he will do whatever it takes in order to be praised by the people and bring the glory to himself. In Deuteronomy chapter 17 verses 18 to 20, we see the requirements that God has laid out for a king. And one of the most important requirements is that the king would, um, would write out the first five books of the Bible and keep it with him at all times so that he has, he, he has principles and instructions on how to rule God's people. See, even though Saul was in authority over God's people, Saul had to be under the authority of God. As the people followed Saul, Saul was expected to follow God. But Saul wanted to do things his way, and that's where the problem lies. Saul was a rebellious and disobedient man who was always looking for his own glory. If you look at 1 Samuel chapter 14, verses 47 to 48, we'll see that Saul is actually known as a national hero. Let me read this for you. After Saul had assumed rule over Israel, he fought against their enemies on every side. Moab, the Ammonites, Edom, the kings of Zobah, and the Philistines. Wherever he turned, 
he inflicted punishment on them. He fought valiantly and defeated the Amalekites, delivering Israel from the hands of those who had plundered them. Yes, God allowed him to accomplish these things. Yes, God allowed him to do these great things and protect Israel. You know, he is known as a national hero. But that doesn't necessarily mean that God was pleased with him. Because in the eyes of God, Saul was rebellious, he was prideful, he was disobedient. And his jealousy and his pride and all this arrogance, it led him down a, a, a dark valley where all of this kind of led to his, um, his broken relationships, uh, led to him losing his place and his kingdom. It led to a tragic end of his life. And since we don't have time to look at all the events of Saul's life, I kind of want to just focus in on 1 Samuel chapter 15. Because it'll give us a good idea of uh, uh, what type of man Saul was. So in 1 Samuel chapter 15, you know, the passage we just read, God tells Saul to kill every Amalekite. Destroy every Amalekite that exists. Destroy every animal that they own. Destroy every belonging that they have. And you know what? It might seem very harsh, but this is God carrying out judgment through Saul for what the Amalekites did to, to Israel when they were leaving uh, their bondage in Egypt. Back in Exodus, when, they, when it, the Israelites were leaving um, Egypt, the Amalekites came from behind them and attacked Israel when they were defenseless. And so this is God carrying out judgment against the Amalekites. And so Saul goes down to the Amalekites. He, he takes his whole army. He fights against the Amalekites. And he gains the victory. And the next day, while everybody's celebrating, Saul, Samuel comes down. Uh-oh. Samuel comes down. He sees that they've built this huge monument for Saul. He goes over to Saul. And before he can even get a word out, uh, Saul tells Samuel that he's obeyed God. That he's killed everything and he, he's destroyed everything. And then all of a sudden, Samuel starts to hear sheep bleeding in the background. He starts to hear cattle. He starts to hear goats. And as Samuel starts to press Saul about these things and about his disobedience, Saul, Saul tells Samuel, um, it wasn't, you know, the people wanted to keep the animals so that we could offer a sacrifice to God. And now we don't know whether that's true or not, whether he was actually going to sacrifice this to God. But what we do know from the passage is that Saul was disobedient to God's word. Look at um, 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 22 to 23. But Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice. And to listen is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Listen to what Samuel says here. To obey is better than sacrifice. To obey is better than sacrifice. Obedience is better than any external display of worship or display of service. Let me say that again. 
Obedience is better than any external display of worship or any external display of service. Now, why was it so difficult for uh, Samuel, I mean Saul, to, to obey God? Why does Saul disobey God? Because disobedience always comes at a cost. Disobedience always comes at a cost. Obedience to God would have come at a cost to Saul, and Saul was not prepared to pay this cost. Now, what cost was it? Let's take a look. First of all, Saul doesn't destroy all the Amalekites. In this text, we see that he only kills the Amalekites located in one area. Now, there were still, there were still other Amalekite territories, but Saul only destroys a certain portion of them. Because later on in the Bible, we know that the Amalekites come back and they attack Israel and they kidnap uh, King David's family. And so for Saul to go and destroy every Amalekite territory, it would have probably cost him more time and more effort. He lets his soldiers keep all the goods and the spoils from the battle because he wants to keep his soldiers happy. He doesn't want any complaints from them. If he had destroyed the goods, that would have cost him maybe the favor of his people. Then he spares Agag the king. He doesn't, he doesn't kill the king because he probably wanted to take the king and parade him around town for a little extra praise. You know, when a, when a uh, sports team wins a championship and how they'll go and take the trophy down to the downtown parade for some photo ops and for some extra praise. It was like that back then. And if Saul had killed King Agag, then he couldn't do that. He it would have cost him a little bit of his pride and a little bit of his glory. And then he keeps the animals alive. He says he was going to off offer these animals to God as a sacrifice. And, and he wants to offer animals that really cost him nothing. These animals kind of just landed in his lap. It wasn't even his. And he says he wants to offer it to God. Let me give you a little quick contrast between King Saul and King, uh, the next king, King David. In 2 Samuel chapter 24, verse 24, we come to this place where David wants to offer a sacrifice to God. And there's a man here that says, here, take my animals and offer it up to your God. And David replies to him and says, no, I'm not going to just take these animals let me buy it. Let me pay for these animals. Because why should I offer to my God something that cost me nothing? It's a big contrast here between Saul and David. Saul is ready to offer something to God that cost him nothing. What we see in this scripture is a discrepancy between what God wants and what Saul was willing to give. There's a big difference between what's being asked for and what's being given. God wants Saul's obedience, but Saul would much rather give God something that didn't cost him much. I'm sure um, you've heard of the book called The Five Love Languages. In it, Gary Chapman, he, he says that every person has a, 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 a unique and every person experiences and expresses love in a certain unique way, much more strongly. Some of these, lo these love languages include uh, giving gifts, acts of service, quality time, physical touch. 
And so, uh, and words of affirmation. And so, let's, for example, for my wife, the way that she experiences love more strongly is through acts of service. The way that uh, she naturally gives love is through quality time. For me, the way that I receive love more strongly is through words of affirmation. And the way that I naturally gravitate towards giving love is by giving gifts and spending quality time with others. Now, for my wife, I might, you know, buy her roses or I might buy her candy or something like that. But it is more meaningful to her if I iron her clothes. You know, it's more meaningful to her if I, you know, do the dishes. If I remember to do something that she asked me to do, acts of service, that is more meaningful to her. But on my part, it takes, it costs me more. It costs me more time. It costs me more energy and effort. And honestly, you know, it costs me my pride because I'd rather do things that are more convenient for me to give. And for my wife, she doesn't naturally give words of affirmation, which is what I feel, which is how I receive love more strongly in. For her, it takes more effort. You know, it takes more energy. And it might cost her some of her pride because it's something that she doesn't gravitate towards naturally. And so obedience always comes at a cost. And it is always more meaningful when we give to God what he wants from us and what he desires from us. It is more meaningful. John chapter 14, verse 15, it says, If you love me, keep my commandments. God says, if you love me, obey my commandments. This is, how, this is what he desires, that we would obey him. In what way is God asking you to obey him today? Is God asking you to forgive someone? Is God asking for you to cut something out of your life? Is God nudging you forward towards something, but you'd much rather stay where you are? Are you bypassing obedience today in order to give an external display of worship and service? To obey is better than sacrifice. But not only does obedience uh, come with a cost, but obedience to God is a lot easier when our hearts are close to him. Obedience to God is a lot easier when our hearts are close to him. Now, um, I didn't, uh, I didn't grow up with my father in my house. Uh, because of divorce, my father was not in my house. I didn't have him growing up. I saw him maybe a couple times a year. I mean, I mean a couple times a month. Uh, but you can imagine that inevitably it's going to have an effect on our relationship. Now, I've grown up with people all my life that have had their fathers in their life, in their home. And some of them have actually told me that even though that their fathers have been there all throughout their life, they still don't feel like they have a real relationship with their fathers. And at first, that was kind of puzzling to me. Now, these fathers are people who have worked real hard for their families. They worked hard to provide food on the table. They worked hard to make sure the bills were paid on time. You know, they, they came home, they, they built shelves for their children when their children needed storage. You know, they fixed toys. They fixed appliances in the house. They cut the grass. They kept the lawn clean. 
They drove their children to basketball camp. They drove their children to school every morning. You know, these men, they took their, their families to church regularly. All these things that they've done for their family, these are honorable, honorable things. These are wonderful things that they did for their family. There was an outward display of fatherhood. There was an outward display of service and sacrifice. But their children still felt as if something was missing. What their children needed was intimacy. There was no closeness. There was transparency missing. There was a lack of open communication. Emotional needs were not being met. Words of affirmation were not being given. Life applications were not being spoken. Um, in some cases, there was no physical touch. There was this outward display of fatherhood, but there was this closeness that was missing. There was an outward display, but in their hearts, they weren't close. God desires that our hearts would be close with him. He desires that we would have intimacy with him. He wants our hearts close. Now, when Jesus was on earth, Jesus said, I came to do the will of my father. I speak the words that I've heard my father say. I do the things that I've seen my father do. Jesus was all about the father's will. But there was this one time in John chapter 17, verse 24, where he expresses his own will, his own desire. And he says, I will that they that you've given me would be with me where I am. He says, I desire, Father, that they that you've given me be with me. The one thing that we see in Scripture where, where Jesus has his own desire and expresses his own will, he says, I want them to be with me. What God wants most is that we be with him, that our hearts will be close to him. How often do we come to church and we raise our hands and we raise our voices to him, but yet our hearts are so far from him? Are we displaying public gifts when we're lacking in our private devotion? Are we serving in ministries, but we have no intimacy with the Lord? Are we engaged in these rituals, but there's a disruption happening within our relationship? How is our heart today? How is our heart? Is there a transaction between our heart and God? The greatest commandment of all is this, that we would love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind. How can we love God with all our being? Jen Wilkin, she says, the heart cannot love what the mind does not know. The heart cannot love what the mind does not know. You've got to have a regular time of prayer with the Lord to know him. You've got to read your Bible to know God. And not just read, but the Bible is meant to be studied. We've got to know God. We've got to know what he's like, what he's done, what he can still do. We need to know God. And obedience is a lot easier when we know God. Obedience is a lot easier when we love God. Obedience is a lot easier when our hearts are close to God. Now, I also want to address uh, those of you who do not follow Christ. 
those of, who, those of you who have not accepted Jesus as your Savior and your Lord. And what I'm about to say, I say with love and I say it with compassion, but at the same time, I need to share truth. Imagine, if you will, imagine this situation where uh, I have a married coworker that I have a close friendship with at work. And in order to express my deep affection and appreciation for uh, my friend and our friendship, one day I decide to come to work with a box of chocolates for her. And maybe on another occasion, you know, I have some flowers delivered to her house. Let's say that I decide to take it a little step further and one day I go down to the local mall and I buy a nice dress, I bring it to work and I leave it on her desk with a little nice note that expresses my love for her. Now, all these things in and of itself, all these gestures, it might seem generous, it might seem hospitable, it might seem harmless. But... Because a relationship doesn't give license to this type of activity, every one of those things are an insult to her and to her husband. You see, outside of a relationship, even my best intentions are an insult to her. You get what I'm saying? Maybe you're bringing God flowers and candy and chocolates and clothing, and maybe you're leaving a little nice note on his desk. Maybe you're doing all these good things for God and you're being generous and hospitable all in the name of God. But understand this, that even your best intentions outside of a relationship are still an insult to God because if you have not addressed your sin then you are, only a, you are still an enemy of God. The relationship doesn't give license to this activity. Unless you address the sin between you and God, God is not pleased with anything that you're doing. There is no amount of activity or good works that can address the sin that keeps us from God. No good works, no activity. We will always be uh, an enemy of God unless we're willing to accept the solution that God has laid out. And in the Bible, God lays out a way for us to uh, uh, deal with our sin and have forgiveness. It is that we would confess our sins. It is that we would repent, that we would believe that Jesus Christ substitutionarily died for us and that he is our Lord and our Savior. This is the way that that God has laid out for us to be saved and for our sins to be forgiven. But some of us, we choose rather to do all these other things than to be obedient to the invitation that he's given us. God has given us this invitation. But some of us are saying, no, I'd rather choose to do this. Obedience is what God is looking for. And obedience in following Christ always comes at a cost. Now, whether you're a Christian or you're not, disobedience always has its consequence. Look at verse 11. When, uh, when Saul disobeys God, God tells Samuel that he regrets the day that he made King Saul. 
But now that regret is not regret how we see it. It's not God saying, I changed my mind or I made a mistake. God is using words that help us to understand what God is feeling in this moment. When Saul disobeys God, God is heartbroken. God is grieving over Saul's rebellion against God. You know, I was reading an interview the other day of uh, some men that were going through uh, rehab for drug addiction. And uh, many of them, they said that they hated what the drugs did to their life, but it was so difficult for them to stop. They hated what the drugs did to their body physically, but they still couldn't stop. And they said when they started to realize what was happening and how uh, this was affecting their family and those closest to them, then they decided they needed to get help. Do we understand that our disobedience grieves the heart of God? Do we understand that our disobedience, it, it breaks the heart of God? Is that something that moves us? In verse 23, we see that because Saul disobeyed God, God has rejected Saul as king. God does not lead Saul anymore. God uh, does not empower Saul with the Holy Spirit anymore. God has moved on now to equip another king. God has taken away Saul's kingdom and is getting ready to give it to David, to someone else now. I'm not going to go into that too much because I think that can preach for itself. Verse 21. Uh, notice how Saul doesn't address God as his own God. Saul says, I was going to sacrifice this to your God, he says to Samuel. He doesn't say my God. Saul is not claiming God as his own here. Because when your heart is, is disobedient and your heart is rebellious, it is hard to claim God as your own. One of the greatest consequences of disobedience is that it places us further and further away from God relationally. Disobedience pushes our heart further and further away from God. Disobedience always has its consequences, but the biggest consequence is that it affects our relationship with God. Now, Saul may have seemed like a national hero, right? He might have seemed like a national hero to his people. But we now know that Saul is not a hero at all. Saul just wanted to do things his way. Saul wanted to do everything that would bring glory to himself. Saul wanted to, to make, the, make his own rules. Saul wanted the favor of his people. Saul wanted all the praise to himself. And in verse 29, Samuel reminds us that there is only one worthy of glory in Israel, and that's God himself. My friend Dwight Knight said, uh, God is the only one that can look in the mirror and say, it doesn't get any better than this. I'm going to invite the uh, worship team up. And... Um, I just want you to know that Saul is not the hero of the story. There is only one hero. And 
The only hero that displays to us perfect obedience is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the only one that displays to us perfect obedience. Saul wanted all the glory and the praise of the people. But Jesus puts off the glory. He takes the form of a man and he humbles himself as a servant. Saul is a leader who shifts the blame onto his people by saying, listen, they wanted to keep the animals as a sacrifice. But Jesus is completely innocent and yet he takes on the punishment for the sins of his people. Saul is disobedient to God. But Jesus is obedient unto death on a cross. Saul wanted to sacrifice what cost him nothing. But Jesus, in order to redeem his people, sacrifices everything that he has himself. In Jesus, we have the display of perfect obedience and perfect sacrifice. Jesus is perfect obedience and perfect sacrifice. <clears throat> John chapter 3:16 it tells us that for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It says for God so loved the world. He so loved the world. Did you know that the word so there was added by the translators to emphasize the quantity of God's love? That word so there is equivalent to the mathematical term that we know as greater than. So when you come to God and you say, God, I'm an adulterer. How can you love me? God says, my love is greater than that. When you come to God and you say, I've hurt a lot of people, how can you love me? God says, well, my love is greater than that. When you come to God and you say, I keep falling into the same sin, how can you love me? God says, my love is greater than that. No matter what you bring to God, no matter what you've done, God's love is always greater than that. God couldn't love you any less God couldn't love you anymore. God gave you everything that he had. He gave you Jesus Christ. He gave you himself. Now we can be obedient because Christ was obedient unto death and he secured for us a place as God's children. We don't need to look for acceptance. We don't need to look for approval because Christ has secured that for us through his obedience on the cross. We don't have to hold on to pride. We don't have to try to gain our own glory because our righteousness is only because of what Christ has done on the cross, because his obedience, because of his sacrifice. Now today I ask you, what area of your life, in what area is God asking you to be obedient to him? And will you listen? Because obedience is always better than sacrifice. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the word that you've given to us. We thank you that your word is both convicting and comforting. Lord God, we ask that you would give us the strength to pay the cost of obedience, Lord. 
And Lord God, please keep our hearts close to you. We desire to be obedient to you. Keep our hearts from straying from you, Lord. We thank you for the Holy Spirit that you have left with us to empower us. We thank you for the gospel that that convicts us and moves us towards obedience. Lord God, I pray for all all those who have heard this word. Would you protect their hearts from the evil one who desires to snatch this word out of their hearts? I pray for the rest of the service. In Jesus' precious name, amen.